So this evening's sermon text is from Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. This is God's holy word. Let us pay our careful attention to it. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful for your word. And in this passage, we see ourselves, Lord. We are, we, we are sometimes so worldly-minded. Please, Lord, point us to you and we, so that we can become heavenly-minded people. Be with us, Lord. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, uh, let me start with a question. What does it mean to be a Christian? So in our days, the title Christian has been loosely used. The word Christian has been thrown around. Many people think that Christians are those who go to church, profess the faith in Jesus, get baptized, and do prayers. It is true that these are important signs and marks of a Christian, but that's not what makes someone a Christian. Being a Christian is first and foremost a supernatural work of God in us. It is God who first loved us. It is God who first calls us. His effectual calling to uh, His effectual calling us to Him by the preaching of the gospel, in which God convicts, uh, convicts us of our sin, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renews our wills, so that we are enabled to embrace Christ and follow His way. The Bible first mentions Christian in Acts 11:26, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It is clear that Christians is not the name for the disciples of Christ. And in the, in the gospel books, we know disciples are also known as the followers of Christ. Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. 
However, Jesus teaches his disciples that following him is not as easy as it sounds. It is not just an act of following, but to be willing to be the high price of following Christ. Mark 8:34 says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Mark 10, 21, Jesus said to the young rich man, You want to follow me? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What Jesus says here is, of course, not a literal application to everyone, but it's to let us know that following him even includes letting go of our most precious thing in this world. It's not that easy. It's a difficult path. This kind of loyalty is only reserved for God. We see such a commandment from the Lord to Israel. In Ten Commandments, we hear the Lord command Israel, saying, You shall have no other gods before me. So, Jesus' teaching about the cost of following him implies that he is the Messiah. He is equal to the Father. That's why when you follow him, he requires the same loyalty we have to the Lord. In other words, being a Christian means pledging allegiance to God, their king. This reality actually changes everything. Since we are no longer of this world, but of a heavenly kingdom, our every thought, mind, and deed are now being renewed. By the Holy Spirit to walk in the newness of life which is in accord with God's will so that we can genuinely pray from our heart saying our Heavenly Father let your kingdom come that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's what it means to be a Christian that is what it means to follow Christ so we see that being Christian or following Christ means living in this world as we are living in heaven. That means we're supposed to carry out our heavenly lifestyle in this world as pilgrims and sojourners. So in our past today, our Lord Jesus teaches us this great truth. That is, we as followers of Christ are not to be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the redeeming power of Christ. So let's jump into our first part. Do not be conformed to the world. To be honest, the things of, the, the things of this world are appealing to us. Every day, our heart feels pulled to this world. There's a line from the hymn, Come down fountain of every blessing, uh, which actually describes our tension in this world. It says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are tempted to be conformed to the world. Our passage starts with two close friend, uh, two, uh, two close disciples of Jesus, John and James. 
they came to Jesus with a request. They asked Jesus to do for them whatever they ask. It is no doubt a bold request. It seems that John and James must have a good faith and strong faith in Jesus to make such a request. But at the same time, this request is not as simple as it sounds. They came to Jesus... So this request is not as simple as it sounds. Under the cover of this request hides a worldly agenda, hides their worldly desires. And this request was only made as a stepping stone for their second request, which is purely of this world. The main purpose of this request is to get a word or permission from Jesus so that they, they could proceed to make their next true request. So why do they need to do that? Why don't they just be straightforward with the request? It seems that they have some concerns about their next request. Usually people who make such a request know that they know that their next request is not a proper one. Let me give you an illustration. If my son comes up to me and said, Dad, I have something to tell you, but promise me that you won't get mad at me. By saying that, he knows that I will be angry with what he's going to tell me. And he also knows that asking me not to be angry is not a proper thing because I should get angry. So I believe that John and James have a similar internal struggle going on. Although there is nothing wrong for them to make a request from Jesus, it is almost guessable that their next request could be a wrong request. I think it is wise to say no to their initial request and stop their next foolish request. But surprisingly, Jesus here, being the Son of God, of course, he knows what's in their heart. Invites John and James to ask him their second request. Jesus' invitation here is like the one from a king. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus' response is full of confidence and authority. And at the same time, he also sends out a welcoming signal to them. It sounds like that Jesus is ready to grant I'm sure that John and James must be excited to hear such invitation from their Lord. This invitation gives them bonus to bring up their second request to Jesus. And that is, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. To be honest, it is quite a selfish request. And it is embarrassing to make such a request. Don't you think so? Literally, they are asking Jesus to put them above all the other disciples. And they want to be the Lord of their own brothers. Have they considered the feelings of the other ten disciples? Probably they did, but they don't really care. 
But just by looking at this request, this shocking request, John and James are pretty good with their theology. What I mean is that the request was based on Jesus' teaching on the final day. Jesus once taught his disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That is Matthew 19, 28. So their request does show their right understanding of the last day that they know they will go, go into the glory with Christ and they will be through they will be sitting on the throne with Jesus, judge the twelve scribes. So their request is based on their understanding. And they do believe that everything will happen according to the teaching of Jesus. That's why they are here asking this request. And also they believe that they will be sitting in one of the twelve thrones with Jesus in the glory. You know, there are only twelve unique thrones reserved for the twelve disciples in the glory. And having one of them is extremely glorious. No one should be discontent. But somehow, John and James were not content. They want something more from what they have been promised. They're thinking about the arrangement of the 12 thrones. And they even came up with their own understanding that the closer one's throne is to Jesus, the greater one will be. And we know that they got their understanding of the last day from Jesus' teaching. But where do they get this idea that a closer one sits to the closer one sits to Jesus is greater? Where did they get that? From our scripture, from, from, from Jesus' word. And we know it is from this world. It is purely of this world. Jesus corrects his disciples by saying, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. According to Jesus' word, we know that the ultimate reason for the request of John and James is that they want to be served by others. Even their fellow disciples are to serve them. Because that is what the world defines greatness and success. And that is the greatest place in heaven, according to their, to their own understanding. But what Jesus does next is to trans transform their worldly thinking by his redeeming power. Here we see it is an irony, uh, it is an, uh, an irony that the disciples believe that they will be throned with Jesus in the glory, which refers to new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God. Yet they think that the kingdom of God will be run by the old world order. That's why Jesus said to them that they do not know what they are asking. They are being the followers of the heavenly king and they are going to, to, to be thrown with Jesus in the glory 
and they want the worldly order to be run. So what John and James want is not of so what John and James request is not of the kingdom of God, but of this world. And yet they want to look for the pattern of this world in God's kingdom, which is impossible and incompatible. That's why Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. These are two different worlds, and you put them together. The next question Jesus asks is actually to remind them that Jesus, whom they are following, is a suffering servant. And Jesus talks about the cup that he drinks and the baptism with which he's baptized. And we know the cup and baptism refers to Jesus' suffering and, and, and death of which he had predicted three times to his disciples. So Jesus here intentionally draws a contrast between his suffering and death and the disciples' worldly request, which shows us that the disciples do not really understand the suffering and death of Christ. So when Jesus asked John and James if they are able to drink the cup of uh, 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 to, to, to drink his cup and get his baptism, John James would have said no if they understand what the cup and baptism really mean. Because what they want and what they request has nothing to do with suffering and death. But Jesus here is referring his cup and his baptism as suffering death. However, what we see here is that John and James surprisingly say that they are able. Obviously, John and James gave their answer without really knowing, without really knowing the meaning of Jesus' cup and baptism. They maybe thought this is a cup of blessing. They do not know what they are saying. So Jesus here accepted their answer. By confirming that they will drink the cup that Jesus drinks, and they will be baptized with will, uh, baptized with the baptism that Jesus is baptized. For Jesus, He is telling the disciples the truth, which is this: Jesus is saying that they will drink His cup. They will have his baptism. Jesus means that they will share in his suffering and death. In fact, Jesus has already told his disciples this message that they will suffer and even lose life for the gospel before. So that's why Jesus affirmed their answering. But at the same time, Jesus refused and rejected the request to sit at his right and left. Instead, Jesus tells them that these seats are prepared for certain people. And no one can take the seats from those whom God has prepared for. So what Jesus is saying is that God actually has prepared for every single one of his people a place in heaven. And this heavenly place is not for sale or for exchange. 
It is sheer grace given by God according to his own will and pleasure. And these 12 disciples, that they can have thrones in the glory with Jesus, is not because they are good, they're meritors. Just because by Jesus' pure grace and election. So there's no need to compare with others because it's all God's doing. So Jesus actually tells them they should not compare with others and they should not envy one another for their spiritual gifts. Again, competition for places is of this world. But for the kingdom of God, everyone receives it by God's grace through their faith in Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, we see ourselves in these disciples. We are slow to understand the things of God. And we mix the kingdom of God with the things of the world. We want to be great and be served. Although we believe, although we say we follow Christ and say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and we believe that he has power to do all things. But what we want is that Jesus can use his power to do whatever we ask. In other words, we want our own will to be done, not his will to be done. We also tend to understand the things of God with the things of this world, so that we measure our blessedness, happiness, success, and greatness by the standard, the standard of this world. Our problem is not is that we forget what it means by being the followers of Christ. We forget that our glorious master is also man of sorrow. And we are following this master's steps. And we forget our Lord's teaching that a servant cannot be greater than his master. So what has happened to our master in this world will also happen to his followers in this world. And these are not new teachings, actually. But we ignore the truth by our own sinfulness and by, and by the deception of the world. We are deceived into thinking that following Christ will bring us earthly blessedness, happiness, success, and greatness. And you know, these are all from our sinful nature, which is still affecting us today. That's why you hear lots of people sharing the gospel saying, believe in Jesus and he will give you this and he will help you and he will bless you. What they mean, uh, what, what, what do they really mean is that they will, Jesus Christ will give you all the earthly things. The, all, all the earthly glory, which is not the gospel Jesus has declared. But thank God that he does not treat us according to our own sinfulness. Instead of passing judgment upon us, Jesus sent us a redeemer, Jesus Christ, when we were still weak, when we were still bound by sin. Jesus Christ being the eternal son, became man by being born. Although he is God, redeemer and savior, he did not come to be great, but to be 
to, but to be a servant of all, so that he could, so that he could serve people, and he serves us to the point of death by giving his life as a ransom for many. As you can see, that Jesus, the glorious Lord and mighty God, is actually not strong, not rich, and not successful according to standard of the world, but is poor, weak, and humble. Yet, this is the way God saves us. Jesus saves us by his death. It's his redeeming power. By his death and resurrection, we are actually transformed and renewed and enabled to be more and more like him. The cross is falling to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So dear brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, we must know that our blessedness, happiness, success, and greatness are not defined by the world, but by our union with Christ. May God help us today to live and walk as citizens of heaven in this world. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much. Thank you for your word that reminds us of our identity, reminds us what, what, what heavy life should, should be like in this world. Father, this is totally different. And, and you help us and strengthen us to follow you and enjoy, you know, enjoying the suffering of Christ. Be with us, Father. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and respond to God's word by singing 503.